Last year, uh, my family and I, we, um, I took a sabbatical last summer, and in the final week of the sabbatical, I went and spent a week in my hometown with where my parents still live. And um, I, am, uh, I have one of those personalities that can only be around people so long, you know what I mean? And I have to withdraw when I'm around a lot of people. And so one particular morning, I said, you know what, I need to go get a loan. And so I woke up early, and I was in my hometown. I drove, and I went to go for a run. And so I went to some trails. I went for a morning run. It was early, early in the morning. And when I was driving home from, my, from the trails back to my parents' house, um, I passed by the cemetery where my grandfather and my grandmother are buried, my paternal grandmother and grandfather. And I hadn't been to their gravesides in over a decade. And so I decided that I wanted to pull in and pay my respects. And so I went into the cemetery and found the plots where my grandparents are buried. And I remember sitting there and I was, I was there, I was reflecting, and I was struck by the realization that on their tombstones and on the tombstones of everyone else, in that cemetery uh, were simply two numbers separated by a dash. Neil McGee, 1922, dash, 1999. Inez McGee, 1925, dash, 2008. And as I sat there that morning, I was reflecting on those dashes. And it was a sobering reflection. It's a sobering thing to think of. That for every single one of us, there, will be a there was a date of our birth, and there will be a date of our death. And we will all have a little dash in between those dates. Every life has a start date, and every life has an end date, and our lives will be defined by what we do with the time between those two dates. The whole of your life is going to one day be represented by a tiny dash on a slab of granite. Have you given much thought to what your dash will be? What will your dash say about your life? What kind of life will your dash represent? You say, whoa, heavy way to start a sermon, Pastor Will. Well, the author of Ecclesiastes said it's better to go to a funeral than a party. So I'm, I'm with the scripture here, all right? Because there's something about reflecting on the vapor of our lives that demands us to take our lives seriously, doesn't it? And we're in a series called The Me I Want to Be, and it's a teaching series about spiritual growth and becoming the person God has created us to be. And today, we're talking about redeeming the time, redeeming the time that God has given us, making the most of our dash. Our scripture today comes from Ephesians chapter 5 starting in verse 15, where the Apostle Paul, he says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And see, Paul says right here, he says that there is a foolish way to live your life, and there is a wise way to live your life. And if you want to know who is wise and who is a fool, look at how they spend their time. <laughs> Do not be foolish, but wise, making the best use of time. This is what the Apostle Paul says. And you're like, hey, that's just the Apostle Paul. Nope, Moses said the same thing. Psalm 90, verse 12, Moses wrote, 
Teach us, Lord, to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. How do you gain a heart of wisdom? By numbering your days, by redeeming the time. If you want to be wise and not a fool, that's the me you want to be, right? You want to be wise. Nobody wants to be a fool, right? If you want to be wise and not a fool, if you want to be the me you want to be, you must pay attention to how you spend your time. Making the best use of the time, Paul says, because the days are evil. Other translations say redeeming the time. Other translations say making the most of every opportunity. The lesson is this. A fool wastes time. A wise person redeems it. And a wise person makes the most of every opportunity. And so, what, how do we waste time? What is the foolish way to live? There are two primary ways that a fool can waste their time. The first is through hurry. And when we hurry, we life that, a life that's hurried and rushed, we lose time. Where did the time go? Um, you know, we like to think hurry is a virtue in New York, don't we? What do New Yorkers say? We're the city that never sleeps, and we're proud of it. <laughs> we boast in that. That's tragic. What a foolish way to live. The city that never sleeps. I had a friend in college who used to say, ah, you can sleep when you're dead. What a foolish and tragic way to live. A foolish, uh, to disregard your limitations. To disregard the fact that you are a human. Dallas Willard, the philosopher who was a professor for years at University of Southern California and was also a Christian, he said that hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. And he said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. He says, hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life. You cannot, listen, if you are hurried and you are rushed and you're anxious, you're not going to be able to pray, live a life of prayer. You can't listen to God if you're hurried. You can't love effectively if you're in a rush, can you? I mean, think of the, the parable of the, the Good Samaritan. All the other folks, the, the, the reason they passed by is they were, so, they were so hurried. And Jesus commends those who walk at a pace slow enough to love. An unhurried soul is the enemy of the spiritual life. And I don't want you to raise your hand, but how many of you feel like you're always in a hurry? And let me ask you this. Do you enjoy living that way? <laughs> Do you? There's a tendency for us to think that hurry and busyness are synonymous. We think that hurry and busyness are the same thing. And if that were true, then all we would need to do to fix that part of our lives is just to underbook our, our calendars. But hurry and busyness are not the same thing. Jesus was busy. Jesus lived a pretty busy schedule, but he wasn't hurried. I'm willing to bet, let's say, Mother Teresa lived a pretty productive life, didn't she? But I assume she wasn't hurried. Jesus was, he lived a busy and productive life, but he lived a life that was unhurried. What it, how does hurry happen? Hurry happens, I think, at least in two ways. One, we live hurried lives when we let other people dictate, other people and things or corporations dictate the pace of your life and the attention that you give your life to. Uh, hurry happens when you let other people set the priorities and the schedule of your life. This can look like overbooking your calendar because either you can't say no or because you have no vision for how you want to spend your time. It can also look like allowing your phone notifications or the social media algorithms or television to suck your attention 
away from the meaningful things in life to the trivial. And before you know it, you'll go, where did the time go? Anybody ever done that? Anybody ever pulled up Reddit, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, whatever the drug of choice is for you, and you're like, where did the time go? We lost it because those things pulled our attention away from what matters. Hurry also happens when you're too busy thinking about the next thing to be in the present moment. Uh, we ru- this is when we, we, don't we rush through meetings? I gotta get this thing done so I can go to this thing. I can get this thing done so I can go to this thing. We scarf down our food, either in our cars, on the train, or at our desk. Why? Because fuel is, is, food is just fuel. It's not important. Slowing down for a meal with another human being, no way. Gotta get on to the next thing, right? We hurry, we hurry because we end our conversations with what? Ah, gotta go, gotta go, gotta go. We're in a hurry. We're in a moment, but we're thinking about the next moment. And we don't enjoy or make the most of the moments we're in because we're too hurried thinking about the next moment. And you string enough of those together, and you'll miss a moment, you'll miss a moment, you'll miss a moment, and before you know it, you'll go, where did the time go? I lost it. When I was being mentored uh, by an older pastor, when I was just starting ministry, um, this seasoned pastor took me on hospital visits. So I was really excited. I was going to see how uh, a seasoned pastor ministers to someone in the hospital. Well, that day we had about an hour to make five, hosp- five visits in the same hospital. So we were up and down the elevators, going to various rooms, and we made five hospital visits in one hour. And one of the things that struck me that day was that even though our time was limited and we were busy, this pastor was never hurried. It was phenomenal. He only had about 10 minutes per visit, but he gave each person his undivided, unhurried attention for the entire time. He wasn't hurried. He redeemed each moment. And that day, I received a master class <laughs> in wisdom, in making the most of the time. So let me ask you this. How do people perceive you when they encounter you? Do you seem rushed or hurried Do they feel like you are giving them your attention? Do they feel like they are getting the best of you? Or do they feel like you're looking over their shoulder to the next person or the next meeting? And let me ask you this. How do you feel when you live that way? A fool lives a hurried, anxious life. And at the end of their lives, they'll say, where did the time go? I lost it. I didn't make the most of it. So we can waste our lives, waste our time by hurry, just being in a rush. But we can also waste our lives through idleness. That's how we waste our time. Of course, I could talk here, be like, idleness is how much time we waste on trivial things like television and social media and video games. That's shaming you, and it's talking about a symptom of a much deeper problem. There's something much deeper here. It's not how we spend our time. It's 2 Thessalonians 3.11. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, and he rebukes them for being idle. Look at what he says in in chapter 3. He says, look, I hear that some of you are walking in idleness. You're not busy at work, but you're busy bodies. Isn't that funny? (laughs) You guys are busy bodies. Get busy. He says, now such, he says, to such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. Paul literally writes to these people and he says, hey, 
Some of you are lazy. You're idle. Get busy. Do something meaningful with your life. But notice he doesn't say get hurried or get anxious. He says work quietly. One of the things I've noticed is that my generation, millennials, and the generation below me, Gen Z, is we watched our parents' generation, the baby boomers, work like crazy. I had so many friends growing up whose parents were so busy. They worked long hours. They were never fully present with their kids. People boasted in those days about not taking all their vacation time. You know, companies gave like three days for maternity leave back then. You know, what are you complaining about? You got a weekend. You got a long week, you know. And the result of this generation's approach to time was burnout, extremely high divorce rates, and a bunch of kids growing up with daddy issues. They were a hurried generation. Uh, was it Harry Chapin even wrote a song about it? And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon. No, I'm not going to make you sing it. So, and what happens is generations always swing pendulums, right? So my generation, I think rightly, saw that, and we said, we, that's not how we want to live our lives. Um, so uh, my generation, we placed a very, we, we place an extremely high value on rest and balance. We love self-care. We talk a lot about boundaries. And you better believe that millennials, we're going to take our vacation days. We are, and we should. This is good, and this is right, and this is true, and this is a way that we're responding to what we saw was a, way, a, a, a hurried way in which the generation above us spent their times. But however, one thing I have noticed in my generation is that we are so afraid of being hurried and overbooked that quite frankly, we squander a lot of good opportunities with idleness. We are, listen, try to schedule a lunch meeting with a millennial. It takes seven weeks. And they'll cancel four times before you finally get the thing. We are slow to commit. We are slow to commit to people. We're slow to commit to places. We cancel plans at the last minute. And we justify it by saying that we're, we're, I'm avoiding burnout. But in reality, we're just avoiding commitment. And we're avoiding responsibility. And we're avoiding expectations. And there's this tendency that we have that if we think, if we have the slightest hint that something or someone has the potential to drain any energy from us, we will tend to resist it at all costs. Ooh, that's going to drain my energy. I need my energy. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately in my own life because what is the line between practicing healthy boundaries and rest and living a life of purpose and vision and meaning and a life that's spent for the, the glory of God and for the sake of other people? Like, I don't want to waste my life. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to waste my life in a hurry. But I also don't want to waste my life sitting around managing, conserving my energy. I want to spend my life for the glory of God and for the sake of the people around me. I don't want to be as someone who avoids hard things, right? I want, and I don't want to be someone who speeds through life at such a frenetic pace that I miss what makes life good and meaningful. I want to live my life to put it 
frankly, like Jesus. And how did Jesus live his life? When you read through the Gospels, you notice that Jesus was neither hurried nor idle. He didn't let other people dictate the pace of his life or his attention. There's this, one of, my, one of the, the gospel accounts that I keep going back to over and over and over again in my life is Mark chapter 2. It's fascinating. Jesus is in Capernaum. He heals, like, he, I think he healed a guy of an unclean spirit, and then he healed Peter's mother-in-law, and everybody finds out that Jesus can heal. And it says that literally the entire town was at the doorstep of Peter's mother-in-law's house, where Jesus was. Like the entire town was on his front porch. And it says that Jesus healed some of them, but then when, when it was time for night, he went to sleep, and then he woke up that morning. There's still people waiting for Jesus to heal him. These are important things. People are trying to put demands on Jesus' time. What does Jesus do? He wakes up before the sun came out, slipped out the back, went to a desolate place, and was praying to his heavenly Father. And you guys know Peter, right? Peter freaks out, and he starts panicking, and he starts looking for Jesus. Finally, he finds Jesus. Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you praying? Everybody is looking for you. And Jesus says, hey, Peter, it's time to leave Capernaum. Let's go to Galilee. More people need to hear the gospel. <laughs> See, Jesus, he knew. Jesus knew that if he was to be of any help to, to the world, he needed time alone to nourish his soul in prayer with his heavenly Father. Jesus protected his time because he valued his time. And he didn't let others dictate his pace or his schedule. That didn't mean, didn't mean that he would never healed people. But that meant that he knew there was a time to recharge and there was a time to go out there and give it all he had. But he knew, not, he, he was wise. He didn't let everybody else uh, crowd into his time. But also, Jesus was never too busy thinking about the next appointment that he failed to be in the present moment with people. Read the Gospels, and you will see that Jesus never rushed past one moment because he was thinking about the next. In fact, almost every great teaching that Jesus spoke in the Gospels, almost every great healing that we see in the Gospels was a result, actually, of somebody interrupting Jesus. <laughs> Jesus lived at a pace that he could be interrupted. And beautiful things could happen when people interrupted him. I don't know about you. Beautiful things don't happen when somebody interrupts me. Usually you get my worst. But Jesus lived at such a pace that when somebody interrupted him, he was free to give them his best. Jesus, he was productive. He was busy even but he wasn't hurried. He took the time to rest his body and his soul. Jesus honored the Sabbath. He took an entire day every week where he rested. But Jesus wasn't idle either. Jesus accomplished everything he set out to accomplish. In his final moments, with his final breath, he was able to say, it is finished. I have, I have completed the work that my Father called me to do. The me I want to be is to be like Jesus. I don't want to be hurried, but I also don't want to be idle. Lord willing, God will give me 70, 80, maybe 90 years. How am I going to redeem it? How am I going to make the most of it? And how are you going to do it? How do we redeem the time? One point sermon today. We redeem the time 
by clarifying our purpose. We redeem the time by clarifying our purpose uh, and then ordering our lives around that purpose. Uh, This week, my wife and I put down a deposit for our 2023 family vacation to Walt Disney World. Yeah. Um, If you've been to Walt Disney World, you know why we're putting our deposit down a year in advance, right? Um, We know our destination, Walt Disney World. We have a list of all the rides and the characters and the experiences we want to experience. And now what we're doing over the next year is we're making a plan. We're forming an itinerary because we want to go to Disney World and we want to squeeze every bit of life that we can out of Walt Disney World. We want to get to the end of our vacation and say we accomplished everything we set out to do. And we want to, we want, I want to be able to say we never felt rushed, but we, we never felt idle either. We got everything done that we wanted to get done, so I'm making a plan. We have clarified our purpose. This is what we want to accomplish at Walt Disney World. How are we going to do it? We're going to order our time in such a way that we accomplish that. You know, if you showed up, if I just randomly showed up to the Orlando airport without a plan, except, hey, I want to make the most of my time at Walt Disney World, that would be foolish, wouldn't it? It'd be foolish. You can't do that with Walt Disney World, and you can't do it with your life either. Paul says, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. He says, know what your purpose in this life is. Clarify your purpose. Paul says the first step in redeeming the time is understanding the will of God for your life. Have you articulated, maybe you need to take some time in prayer this week. Maybe you need to take a retreat or something and really sit before the Lord and determine what has God put in your heart to contribute to the world in the one and only life that he's given you. Clarify your purpose. And when you do this, and when you understand what God's will is for your life, you can then order your days accordingly. What are you going to do with your life, with that dash to accomplish the purpose that God has given you? What do you need to say no to to accomplish that purpose? What do you need to say yes to to accomplish that purpose? You know, the word for time that Paul uses could also be translated as season or opportunity or even moment. And there's this idea that in your life, yes, you'll have one dash, the day of your birth, the day of your death, and a dash in between, but there will also be these many other dashes in your life, these seasons of your life that have a start date and an end date. And what you do with the time between those two dates will determine the fruit of that season. And so what are the different seasons we face in life? There's school, students, you're in school right now. What is your purpose? Have you clarified what you want to accomplish in that season? Uh, We have seasons like our career, individual jobs. You may not be at the same job forever. There's a start date and an end date to the current job that you're in. What is God's will for you in that job while you're there? What is God's plan for your career? You will have, there's a day where you start your career, there's a day when you will retire. What about singleness and dating? What is your vision? What is your purpose for your your singleness, your season of singleness? What is your purpose for marriage? When my wife and I were going through premarital counseling 
the counselor made us write out a mission statement for our marriage. That was such a super helpful exercise because it helped us determine what kind of marriage we want to have and and the things we want to spend our times on. Other seasons are seasons where you have kids. And then there's all sorts of seasons in there, aren't there? There's like infant season, you know, toddler season. There's the teenage season. There's all these seasons. There's a season of empty nest. And us young parents are like, what's that like? You know, (laughs) Uh, there's the season of retirement. There's a season of your time in New York. Not all of you are going to be here forever. There's a season, and there's all these little dashes in your life, start dates and end dates. How will you leverage these seasons of time for the sake of God's kingdom, and how will you allow God to shape your soul during these seasons? So just as a practical matter, as just an exercise, let's take two of these seasons and consider how to redeem the time. First, let's take singleness. The Apostle Paul says that singleness is a gift, And some of you are like, yeah, socks at Christmas are a gift too. That doesn't mean I want them. You know? You're like, singleness is a gift. Where do I return it for something better? I get it. You know? Being single is one of those seasons where it's easy to long for the next season. But a wise person will understand that singleness is often, and dating, I would include dating in this, is a season of time where you can spend undistracted amounts of time cultivating your spiritual life and serving the kingdom in a way that you simply cannot do when you have other commitments. You know, Ephesians 5, people often think that's like a marriage passage. It's about husbands and wives. It talks about what a Christian husband should look like. It talks about what a Christian wife should look like. And it's a person who's selfless, someone who sacrifices themselves for the sake of the other, mutual submission, patience, love, kindness, humility, all those things. Let me ask you a question. When should you begin cultivating those character qualities? After you get married? No. When you're single. What is your vision for your season of singleness? Have you clarified that? Have you clarified the purpose for your season of singleness? And how should that purpose inform how you redeem the time you have today? What are you going to say no to? What are you going to say yes to during this time? I remember when I was single, I was talking with my pastor, and I was describing to him the type of woman I hoped to marry. And I was single at the time, wasn't dating anybody. I was just, it was dream woman conversation, you know? And I was like, man, Ephesians 5, baby, I want a wife who, you know, no debt. I want a wife, you know, who I want good in-laws. I want, uh, you know, all those, like, and I was like, I want a wife that can do this. I want a wife that can do this. And I was naming this dream woman. And my pastor said, uh, she sounds great, Will. You think she would go for a guy like you? That was wise, wasn't it? Because in that moment, he gave me a new purpose and a new vision for my season of singleness, to become the kind of man that the kind of woman I wanted to marry would want to marry. (laughs) And that shaped the way I spent my time, my thoughts, my money, my energy. And Lord willing, if you desire to be married, then your singleness, Lord willing, will just be a season. And it will end Who do you want to be when that season is over? How are you going to redeem that time in such a way that your future spouse will thank you for how you spent that time? What are you going to say no to? What are you going to say yes to?
So that's clarify our purpose and then live it out. What about children? The vision you have for your child's life, the purpose that you have clarified that you want for your child's life will determine how you structure the time you have with your child. If your vision for your child is to go to a good college, to go to the Ivy League and have a high-earning career, then you will, you'll fill their time trying to make sure they get into the right schools, preschool, elementary school, high school, all those sort of things. You will make sure that their schedule is filled with all the right extracurriculars, music class, sports, languages, you know, science class, whatever. If you have that vision for your child, you will structure their time in such a way to fulfill that vision. If your vision is that your kid will be a star athlete, then you will fill their schedules with sports leagues, private coaching, summer camps. Those are all good things. If your vision for your kids is simply to stay out of your way while you're cooking, while you're in the kitchen, then you will hand them a tablet, tell them to go to their room and be quiet, right? And entertain themselves. If you have a vision for what you want your child to do and be, you will structure your time and their time in such a way that they, you will best set them up to accomplish that vision. My question for you is, do you have a spiritual vision for your child's life that is affecting the way you schedule their time? Do you want them to grow up loving God, knowing God, and loving the church? Well, how are you going to redeem the time to accomplish this? And I say this with all humility and love. Some parents spend so much time trying to set their kids up for worldly endeavors, good things, yet seemingly have no plan for developing their spiritual lives. And without a plan, what will happen is you will end up allowing all the other things to creep into their schedules, and before you know it, you have crowded out the spiritual stuff, and you're in a hurry rushing them from thing to thing. Um, one, of the things I, one of the things I'm so grateful for for my parents is that they, look, my parents aren't perfect. They're watching online right now. They like to hear me preach. Um, but they were good. And they had, they, I, they placed a higher value on my spiritual life than any other pursuit in my life. And I'm so grateful for that. And what this looked like for me was that I was at church every single Sunday morning. And I was at youth group every single Wednesday night, that's when we did it back then, without exception. My parents, without exception, made sure, made sure I was in church. And here's the thing, and I, do, I promise you I'm not saying this to boast. I was a very good athlete, state champion, nationally ranked, scholarship athlete at a Division I school. One of those things that a lot of parents are obsessed with their children attaining. I had it. I was recruited by some of the best schools in the nation, all those things. But let me tell you this, parents, listen. My parents could have leaned into that, and they could have put so much pressure on me, and they could have forced me to make athletics my identity, but they didn't. In fact, if track practice ever ran late, and I was late to, church, late to youth group on a Wednesday night, my parents would make sure that my track coach heard about it. 
I never even bothered to ask my parents to miss a tr- to go to a track meet on a Sunday and miss church because of it, because I knew they would not have allowed it. I didn't always like that. I was a teenager. Church was not my favorite thing when I was a teenager, okay? Teenagers, we get it, you know? It's not your favorite thing. But my parents recognized that they only had 18 years to instill their values into my life. And their value above my athletic success and my academic achievement was that more than anything that I loved Jesus and loved his church. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm grateful that my parents cared so much about my soul that those secondary things, they allowed them to be secondary. And a side piece of that is that never once in my life did I feel like my parents' love or acceptance or affirmation of me depended on how I performed or what I achieved. I don't say that to shame anybody who has goals for your children or boast in myself, but I say that to say this. Your child's soul matters more than where they go to college or how successful their future career is or how much money they make. Man, it's okay to invest in those things. I want my kids to succeed. I mean, I, we spend crazy amounts of money to send my kids to all the things because I care about those things. But don't get caught up in those things because they're secondary. And don't lose or waste that small amount of time we have with these kids. To waste, don't lose the time to nurture and cultivate their souls toward God. Right now, our parents uh, of young kids here in our church are going through a study of a, on a book called Habits of the Household, and it is about redeeming the time. And parents who are in it, like, it's, it's been a really beneficial thing the last couple of weeks. And I love that so many parents in our church are saying, we're going to redeem the time. We only have a few years. We're going to redeem every last bit of it. See, we have all these seasons of life, singleness, dating, kids. You can apply this to your career, school, marriage, retirement, leisure, hobbies. All these things, when added up, create a life. They create your dash. What will your dash be? Will it be lived in a hurry? Will you forfeit the great things of God because you are chasing the good things of earth? Will your life, will your dash be lived in idleness? Will you resist hard things that God is calling you to out of fear or out of laziness? Paul says, look carefully how then you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. There is no one who redeemed time better than Jesus. Jesus lived 33 years. His ministry was only three years. But Jesus understood with crystal clear clarity what the will of his father was and what the purpose of his life was. And he made the very best use of the time he had. He lived the life we could never live. He was never hurried. He was never idle. And he died in our place as our substitute to save us from sin. And he rose from the dead so that we could have freedom from death. And then he sent his spirit into our lives to empower us to make the most of our lives. To empower us to redeem the time that God has lived in given us. We've all got a dash. The will of God for your dash is to know him 
and make him known. How are you going to order your life in such a way that you can redeem the time of that dash? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness and your grace that you've given us life. You've given us your spirit. And God, you have called us to a purpose greater than ourselves. God, I pray that we would not squander our lives in a hurry. I pray that we would not squander our lives on idle and trivial and senseless things. God, I pray that our lives would be committed to knowing you and making you known. God, would you give us the wisdom and the power to order our days rightly. Teach us, Lord, to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.